0: Hello, welcome to episode number two. Um, This episode will cover the months of May and June. Uh, Given that not too much happened in May, June, lots of things were picked up. I think an overarching theme for both of those months um, is the War family, Uh, for me personally. So the second half of this episode, I'm going to tie that in with the um, definitions service, my understanding of that, as well as sort of a communal family, and discuss more my interviews with um, two faculty members and professors I had earlier during the summer. So I'll start with the month of May. Um, May was, school was over uh, by April 30th, and so May 1st was kind of spending the first of May, um, I spent lots of time simply digesting what had just happened. I feel like I didn't have time really with school still being just as rigorous, a little bit less, but you know, still keeping up the grades as before, was seeing all those changes. May was the first month where May 1st in particular was the first day that I feel like not only myself, but lots of my peers friends at school had a chance to simply debrief and digest uh, what we all just went through. Uh, I also think that May was the first time I saw the impact coronavirus would have as not just a two-week thing, as not just a three-week thing, um, not just a month or two months, but I saw it like as, oh, snap, this can be going on for the next year or two especially because towards the end of the month of May, I began my internship with the United States Chamber of Commerce in the policy division. And uh, the very first meeting, I had my supervisors. We uh, went over forecasting uh, predictions for when the economy would recover to the levels that it that our economy will reach the level it was in quarter one of 2020. It won't reach that level again all the way until uh, quarter four of 2021. So almost two years um, of economic recovery, which we're about to face. But tying in the theme of family to the month of May, uh, taking one step back, um, My brother was also home for the month of May. I have a nine-year-old brother named Gage. And I wouldn't have gotten to spend any time, maybe, if they visited or I visited. um, But I wouldn't have gotten to spend any time with them, with my mom and my brother, my brother in particular, if I were in Washington, DC, uh, for the summer, as it was planned. looking back on this time that we got to spend together and play video games until 1 a.m. or have movie nights or go on rides in the park or do things not only together, but do things in isolation from society as a whole together. I think that was a whole other level of cultivation in our relationship that I got to explore with him in the month of May, which, I already am extremely grateful for. Um, and also, I think it's helped to watch my mom work from home. She works in corporate America and in finance in particular. And I think it was eye opening as I hope to enter corporate America or get a job in the very near future. It helped to see sort of her working hard. I do have a single mother, I've had one for my whole life. meeting she attends, the hustle she puts into her work—it helped me to see that, to recognize her point of view more. It's not like she just goes off to work, is at this place all day, and then says she's busy. I get to see, you know, her calendar. I peek over at her huge spreadsheets. I get more of a real-life experience—or um, a small one, I guess—of what a day in the life uh, for her is like. So month of May consisted of sort of taking a step back if I had to sum all that up in one experience spending time with my brother and my mom and really understanding that I have the opportunity this summer to to make something of myself to do something at least for the month of May that was more active because my internship like I said before picked up towards the end of May um, but in that month from May 1st to about May 26th, it was, I have time. Like, I, I don't think I'll ever get time like this again. I don't think I'll ever get time like this again, where nothing's expected of me but to sit, you know, do household chores, basic things, watch after my brother here and there. But that was a life experience for me. I think especially, I also got that same feeling when my internship ended. 7th, I have from August 8th to August 31st to do something with my life, to make something happen, to to get a little bit better each day at something, to practice something, to read something. So family and being in this space also made it a a great environment to do that also. So that was the month of May. Mainly for me personally. And I think I wouldn't say the entire month of June was the hardest for me, but I think the first week of June. I believe George Floyd was killed in um, late May, and the effects of it on social media and you know, in everyone's Instagram feeds and Facebook feeds and on the news, hearing about it constantly, I think from late May when he was murdered through the first week of June Really, really, I think impacted me the most uh, this summer. I hate saying this, but before the George Floyd um, killing, I saw police brutality as my identity problem as a black woman. I saw okay, police brutality overall is an issue, and it's an issue for people who look like me, but I never saw it as my personal problem. I never thought, okay, a police officer is going to pull me over, and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and if that situation ever happens to me, I'll have it fully under control. Because I'm in Ann Arbor, and I go to Michigan, and I'm doing all these things, and I have a quote-unquote future. I never quite said that to myself explicitly, but when I saw that video, and fear and dread and sadness and despair came at me all at once, my initial thought of police brutality being my individual problem ran away. It ran away immediately. I think also another aspect of that that made Or just about police brutality. It was about institutional and systemic racism over the past 400 years. And that affected me before I was even, before I was even born, before I was even a thought. That has already affected me. So I think that's when shifted for me as like as a black person I don't have the privilege of picking and choosing which issues I'm going to have like I might never encounter police brutality directly but police brutality still affects me and someone who might encounter police brutality might not experience sexual harassment in a workplace or not getting a promotion in a workplace I maybe, probably, likely will face in the very near future when I hope to get a job after graduating from undergrad in two years. Another reason why the conversation became less about police brutality was the nationwide that eventually became worldwide protest. I think when the protests became worldwide, I really understood the gravity of it all. Because my initial exposure was on social media. You know, going through TikTok, going through Instagram, going through Snapchat, and seeing everyone posting quotes from influential people like Angela Davis and Maya Angelou, or uh, watching CNN, seeing Van Jones speak about what was going on in America. But when I saw that protests were happening in America, and not just protests, but I want to say that it was the largest civil rights movement in history. If I saw this correctly, I believe it was the New York Times who said that it was the largest protest or the largest civil rights movement in history, that's when it really clicked for me. Like, okay, this isn't just about my own personal experience anymore, whether I experienced police or not. It's not about my own personal experience. And it's not about anyone's own personal experience. It's about a collective. It became like a collective. I think that's where the word family for me really comes out. There's a poem by Sonia Sanchez called The March for Disarmament. I believe the date was June 12, 1986, or something in that realm. I don't have the exact title of the poem memorized, but she discusses in one of the stanzas the diversity of the protests. She discusses the different religions she sees, the different professions of people she sees, races, colors, creeds, everything. During class this past semester, when I was reading that poem in my Black Feminist Poetry class, of course I never understood that I could be witnessing that same thing in three or four months after all, after everything went down, basically. And so, to read something to be educated, and then to see it happen in real life, it like I don't even know if I have the words to describe it. But it really just, it makes the black struggle in America timeless. And so, therefore, we can now connect the theme of family to not just a collective around the world or your close, immediate nuclear family, but we can connect that theme now through time. We also discussed in that Black Women's Poetry class generational trauma. And while I'm only 20, I, I still have seen my mom and my grandmother experience racism. And there's no way, there's no way that the stress and the trauma through black life in America does not get passed down to your children. There's almost no way. It's not always in the same way. There are many different forms. But family throughout time, and this connection throughout time, this generational passing of trauma, trying to make it less and less, even though when I turn on television, I see things like George Floyd getting murdered and Jacob Blake being shot in the back seven times. It's almost like reliving it. Or you're cultivating your own generational trauma. So, for family, we can take it as worldwide, which really really enlighten me. You can discuss it as your nuclear family. You can also discuss it as uh, generational family. Okay. One other theme about family that comes up during that first week of June um, is that, as I mentioned before, I have a nine-year-old brother. And I knew he knew the name George Floyd. I don't think he quite knew um, what had happened, but it's my brother, my mom, and I are sitting at the dinner table, and my mom asked if I could explain to him what had happened to George Floyd. and um, He's nine, so he's squirming that a white police officer put his knee onto uh, a black man, George Boyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds and choked him to death. And uh, I don't think he saw the video recording I think it's best if he didn't. I think that description does enough for a nine-year-old. But um, It was so interesting to me because as soon as I said that statement, I then saw my nine-year-old brother as a black man, quote-unquote. I realized that, wait, <laughs> he's, a, he's a male. And he is also African-American. I hadn't, it's like I hadn't realized these things before until I put his identity in the context of systemic racism and of this particular incident. And that was an extremely scary realization because it was the first time that someone that close to me something like that, especially because he's so young and doesn't quite grasp the gravity of all of this yet. And I also think that as I have a realization about systemic racism not being too close to me because I am protected by the privileges of having a mom who is a homeowner of going to the University of Michigan of seeing myself like make societal proofed progress, that I think I didn't quite see those things as my prop, my quote unquote not my problem. So I think my brother Gage understands similarly those things. I think that he's thinking I'm young, I'm little. He's in all white spaces. He goes to public school in Ann Arbor. So he's in all, or very, very majority white spaces. He's one of the two black kids on his soccer team, things like that, I think, he re- I think he doesn't think that these things can affect him. But little does he know he's nine, and they already have. They already have. I also had a very interesting conversation with my friend who was also in that black women's poetry class, and she has an older brother, uh, who's, I think he's 6'1", dreads, dark-skinned, huge black guy. And we talked about the contrast between her older brother and my younger brother, and how as, as people who are related to them, especially in the feminine role in the black family, We see them more as, or not see them more, but we have to take a second and see our brothers, how society sees them in order to keep them safe or to protect them. Not all the time, but a little bit. And my friend mentioned that this can lead to trauma for the men. society has crept into how not only they're living but how they're being raised and how they're being brought up and the restrictions that that places on their ability to grow. So that is primarily May and the first week of June and after the break I'll tie in. The two interviews I had With Professor Luke Schaefer and Mary Jo regarding how all of that ties into the McDonald Community Ginsburg Fellowship. Okay, so we'll get started on part two of this episode. On the second part, given that the first part I focused a little bit, more on how I personally felt on the theme of family, for the second part I'm going to talk more uh, technically about how the political climate of late May and early June and systemic racism of black Americans translates into economic inequity, um, particularly in the Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor community. So. First, I conducted an interview with Dr. Luke Schaefer. Um, He is a professor in the School of Social Work, as well as the Ford School of Public Policy uh, at the University of Michigan. And I think I had a great conversation with him, especially given that um, he hails from the Ypsilanti area, uh, which is where uh, I currently live. We talked lots in the beginning, um, about simple things we had in common uh, in terms of the streets we walked on to get to the bus stop and locations around town Ipsy specifically um, that we love he's also the author with Catherine Eden on two dollars a day living on almost nothing in America uh, according to this website it was named one of the 100 one of the 100 novel books of 2015 by the New York Times Book Review. He won the Hillman Prize um, for book journalism as well as many other awards. So I was extremely excited um, that I was able to connect with Dr. Schaefer uh, over this past summer and get his opinion on on my project and uh, especially given that he could put it in context um, with um, put it in context with the city uh, of Ypsilanti as well as the city of Ann Arbor so I guess I can start uh, with why I decided to pursue economic inequity um, first before we dive straight into the interviews but I decided to pursue economic inequity because first of all I love um, economics I think the idea that it Well, the way it was first proposed to me um, was by my, like, oh my gosh, I can't remember who. I want to say my mom uh, or some guy on some YouTube channel, but it was initially proposed to me as the way the world works, and that description was so cool to me. Um, uh, The fact that it combined math, but not too much math, uh, history, not too much history, reading, writing, uh, academia... The fact that it combined all those things into a discipline that all were just applied together to the real world um, just stole my heart. Um, I love economics. I'm a rising junior studying economics right now at the University of Michigan, and I still love it, which is a good sign. I guess when you get halfway through your major and you, you still like it. Um, but Love economics, love the road application, love the math and analytical approach that it has. Um, so I decided to pursue that, especially when I was in high school. I lived in Ypsilanti, um, but I bused to my high school in Ann Arbor. Um, so I got on the bus, and it was just so interesting to notice things like who, who was on the bus from Ipsy to Ann Arbor? Um, who was on the bus from Ann Arbor to Ipsy the change in infrastructure uh, from the place I got picked up on the bus stop to where I got dropped off. Um, interesting, very interesting uh, things like that uh, caused me to pay attention to the differences between Ipsiland and Ann Arbor in terms of economic as well as income and equity. And there's a famous economist, uh, I believe his name is Thomas. Thomas Sowell, he's an American economist, and I listened to one of his interviews, and I knew that I wanted to pursue um, Economic inequity as my project because he made a similar statement on, one, on an interview that I watched on YouTube He stated how he grew up. I believe it was in Harlem, New York. I could be wrong, but he grew up in an area of New York and took the bus from the area of New York that he lived in, primarily black community, which was lower income, and he took the bus through a higher income, more stereotypical um, upper class New York area. And so the experience that I had with that and the experience that he had with that and how he took that experience and ran with it in his research and his conversations really inspired me uh, to do something with this project. So now let's just go right into interview. So I asked similar questions to both of my interviewees. The other interviewer, which I'll talk about on the next episode, uh, is Mary Jo. She is the director of the Ginsburg Center and she previously worked at OCED, the Office for Community and Economic Development of Washington County. Um, so I'll speak with her or share more of her experiences as I put her interview more in context with the events of July and August. So with Dr. Luke Schaefer, I initially asked him to distinguish between economic inequity and poverty. And He responded that poverty is simply not having resources. He offered me to think about it as um, a floor. So there's lots of economic inequity, but no floor that someone can slip under in terms of poverty. Um, So in economic inequity, you can have someone who's super rich, you can have someone who's then kind of rich, then you can have someone who's rich, um, but they're all above a certain line uh, I think that's very compelling since his book is $2 a day living on almost nothing in America can, we, can I even grasp what living on less than $2 a day uh, looks like even starting, even starting right now but inequity is saying that it's not okay to have someone who is extremely rich and then someone who is below that poverty line whereas poverty only observes where that line is who is below it and who is above it and he explained that inequities is a concept that melds um, melds poverty with our real world society inequities puts poverty in context with what we're seeing what we're observing um, in terms of racial injustices gender inequities um, religious inequities and things like that in the context of the greater Economy. And so we kind of got off on a, a tangent with this question. We talked more about how Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti is a powerful microcosm, not an exception as I initially thought it was coming into this project, but it's an interesting microcosm for um, America. For example, the fact that I had this experience in the 21st century and Thomas so well experience the same thing all the way across the country in New York many years ago is no coincidence. Um, So next we started talking about college towns in particular, and if the University of Michigan wanted to tackle this issue of the direct impact that they're having on economic inequity, um, which I looked closer at when looking at the Washington Times Opportunity Index created by OCED, How would they go about this? Um, Initially, I thought, okay, students are the problem. (laughs) Uh, The University of Michigan uh, just, I think, crossed the boundary in terms of how many students are uh, in state versus out of state. I believe now it's 51% of undergraduate students are from out of state and 49% are in state. So I initially thought, okay, it's all these out of students affording. the University of Michigan's enormous tuition charge and simply being able to buy high-rise apartments that push out lower-income people, uh, things like that, but Luke Schaefer put it in a frame of mind that I think helped me tremendously. He then again referenced this idea of Anne Arbor, Nix Laney being a microcosm. He stated that this economic inequity and this slow pushing out of lower-income people in college towns happens everywhere, because he stated that you have to remember that a minority of Americans are actually college educated. It's 40% of Americans have their college degree, roughly. So, having your college degree, well, I guess not only having your college degree, but, but starting on the road to getting one, is already open. All across the country. So, that frame that he put that in for me helped uh, a ton in terms of housing inflation in some ways, um, and Arbor being not very affordable. So, that was the main point of his interview, I think was most helpful is that it allowed me to see that Michigan is not the only um, not the only university that goes through things like this. And so then I asked him more about, okay, well then how do we understand this problem if it is an America problem and not just one that is based uh, in Michigan and in Ipsy and in Ann Arbor. And so I asked him specifically when he's researching economic inequity, even referring to the Opportunity index. Is it plausible to isolate economic inequity from other social inequities like race, gender, etc.? How can we understand how? What is the outstanding factor that you see in Washington County or in other um, microcosms that follow a slanting and inverse pattern across the country that allows you to label something as economic inequity and not racial or gender disparities? Or can you even do this? and he said that they can't be evenly separated. He said it's important to understand that race is a compounded disadvantage. And the way he stated that exactly helped me a lot also to understand, he stated that we have to look at all these factors multidimensionally as well as, intersection, as, well as intersectionally, I believe that's the right word, but it refers to Kimberly Crenshaw's idea of intersectionality and so Looking at those all together now, race, as he puts it, a compounded disadvantage, gender disparities, as well as income inequity, it almost helped me understand, not the order quite in which these things came, but if you go way back in history, the discrimination of someone based on the color of their skin is sort of a pillar of America. I hate to put it that blatantly. But in any economic situation, an initial shock happens and then economic uh, positive things or negative things will happen afterwards. And so race was that initial shock for America. Being diverse was that initial shock for America. And racial inequity A byproduct of the racial inequity. Because if you think about it, if everyone looked the same in America, what else would economic inequity be based off of besides, I guess, that individual's ability to succeed and do other things in America? So it helped me base economic inequity. talking with Dr. Schaefer about these things and how they all intersect. And it also helped me elevate my understanding of intersectionality as not something that simply can exist in one person, but can be expanded and compounded, as Dr. Schaefer put it, into this overarching concept that's looking at one issue from many different angles. So that sort of sums up my interview uh, with Dr. Schaefer. And it was helpful to hear um, from his perspective, given that he studied these things so much. And I think it also helped to uh, discuss economic inequity with. Poverty expert. He's very involved in uh, the Poverty Solutions Center at the University of Michigan. And so it also helped to clearly cut the difference between those two, uh, especially being an economics major and wanting to eventually research economic inequity uh, later in my career. So, now that the technical note Noah's kind of summed up, I guess I'll sum up this entire uh, episode saying that the interview with Dr. Schaefer helped me tie my personal uh, and emotional feelings regarding George Floyd, his death, my situation studying economics and also living in AC Busington or almost on a daily basis, to the overall um, theme of America, whether it's understanding my own of how police brutality affects me into broader society or understanding that my economic education has the ability or my economics education at the University of Michigan has the ability to understand and analyze these inequities just for black Americans specifically, but um, for everyone. So thank you for tuning in to this episode. Um, episode three, with the months of July and August, will be next. And there I will discuss more in-depth my conversation with Mary Jo. Thank you.